Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. Illustration got two NAPNAS cups here, right? Um, and I'm not sure if you can see completely, um, but um, if you're coming over to my house uh, to drink coffee, which I actually now drink the last six years of my life, and I actually continue to drink more and more of it, and I understand now why it's such a, such a thing. But if I uh, got a couple cups out and um, I said, hey, grab a cup. And uh, we'll pour a cup of coffee, we'll sit down and talk. If you walked up to these cups, um, which one would you be more inclined to uh, grab? Can you see on here? There's, there's some junk. Ah, man, that stinks. It's just not quite clean, all right? There's some, uh, can, you not, can you see it? This totally flopped. <laughs> I should have picked something black. Like, all right, this one, man, this looks good, right? But if you walked up to and grabbed, you would be more inclined to grab this cup. It, was, it would be upside down, and you would grab it. It looked good. You turn it right side up, and you go to pour your coffee, and you realize somebody forgot to clean the dish, right? And even though there's a little bit of stuff here or there, <laughs> which you have to know me, there would, it would not be dirty at my house, but um, um, you would still be more inclined to grab this one. You would definitely avoid this, would you not? You'd be like, where my drink is going, I am not sharing whatever that is in what's going into my body, which it's oatmeal, all right? Yeah, I, I didn't know what else to use for an illustration. Jesus would use this illustration when he would talk about... Um, the teachers, the religious people of his day. He would say, your life has been consumed with making sure that you clean the outside of the cup. What everybody can see. What's external. You've cleaned this really well. It looks good. This is what your objective has been. But honestly, what I see and what the reality of the situation is, is that the interior of the cup, it's awful. It's unclean. It's not sanitary. You don't use it, right? Jesus would use these illustrations. In fact, in another place, he said, hey, uh, actually, you guys, you remind me of a graveyard. Like, the tombstone looks really good. Uh, and I've been to Jerusalem, and, 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 and the, the gra- I've been to a graveyard there, and things are, they, they dress it up really nice, even better than we do in a lot of ways. And yet, he said, that's what your outside life looks like, but your heart looks like what's going on inside of that tomb. As the decay of a body now, as it reaches the years, and it's, it's just bones and decay and awful. And I want to use that as a pretext because I think where we're going into this Sermon on the Mount is important for us to remember other teachings of Jesus to understand completely where Jesus wants to take us. 
I want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is not a, it's not a bunch of random statements. It's not just a bunch of like uh, pithy proverbs that Jesus just kind of threw out there and, ooh, yeah. No, he was building a logical uh, uh, presentation to these people. He's building off what he first said at the beginning. Every teaching that he does as he walks through this sermon, which no doubt took him quite a while to preach, which I love that. Um, there's no way you could preach this in like 30 minutes, right? But it is the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not giving the Sermon on the Mount every week, so I understand you guys want me to shut her down. But like, he is, he is building this whole thing together. And often people have misunderstood and made this a bunch of independent sayings. Jesus is not just giving new laws, section four, code section four, sub, sub law five, you know, just like, no, he is building a whole case on what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven, to become a whole new person, to follow Jesus Christ himself, and experience what is true blessing in this world and in this life. To find what God purposes for our lives and to experience it. We've, also, we've obviously seen that the foundation is the Beatitudes. They're the attitudes of a new life, the characteristics of a new kingdom. They're the cornerstone. This is, where, this is the attitude of my life now, and as I have that attitude, I begin to comprehend how to experience life and what Jesus continues to teach, how to interact with these certain areas of my heart and life. These attitudes at the beginning are the foundation for how I live through every teaching of Jesus. These progressive teachings become a progression toward a life of agape love. You see, the point of this whole thing is to be like Jesus. That is the goal of God from the foundation of the world, is to make you and I holy, set apart, to look like his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very epitome of what? Love. Love. And so when, when we recognize that Jesus said, listen, this all boils down to one, a, a couple things. Love God, love others. He's actually saying, live like I completely did. I loved God and love others. So how do I get to a place in my life that I can truly understand and then experience what it is to love God with all my mind, soul, heart, strength, and my neighbor as myself, right? That's the whole point of this. Love, love is the primary objective of God's mission and purpose in your life. Because Jesus himself, God is love. Jesus, the divine son of God, is love. And he's inviting us to experience a life that is characterized by one dominant theme. Love. Love. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. To live as Jesus lived is to live a life of love. And so we've already recognized that the attitudes of the, 
the attitudes of the Beatitudes are things like this. Lord, have mercy on me. To move to a life that mimics Jesus is to live with a continuous, consistent attitude of, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I depend on you. Lord, keep me on mission. Keep me on mission. And I would say this comment as I jump in. Wrong action, wrong behavior is not the problem in human existence. Can I say that again? Wrong behavior is not the problem of the human existence. It is a symptom of what the problem is. Governments, societies, cultures are continually obsessed with trying to reform behaviors, right? Like, we have built whole systems, judicial systems, and and patterns of trying to just get people to behave differently. The scriptures are going to say, hey, good luck. It's a worthwhile effort. But as we found for now civilization after civilization after civilization, prisons have not gone away as we have evolved as humankind. Have they not? No. The more we try to to legislate behaviors, the more we realize it just doesn't work. Right? And at the heart of what Jesus is going to share today is that behavior, behavior is not at the core of what we need fixed in our life. Now, Jesus is saying a lot of new things. I want to give a little context to what I believe is a pivotal few verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's like that unseen, read over it, don't give much mind to it, move on to the next hot topic kind of thing. But yet, if we don't grab a hold of these few verses, we kind of miss the whole primary aim of what the Sermon on the Mount is, to create in our hearts love. An ability to love God with all that we are and to love others as ourselves. These pivotal verses. Now, and what was happening in that day is Jesus has come on the scene. He's teaching a lot of, of things that they really haven't heard. It's a new slant, a new perspective. Jesus does a lot of things that what they had grown accustomed to religious people doing, uh, he didn't do. He hung out with people who were of a bad reputation, who were considered not well thought of. He's teaching things from a new slant that's not emphasizing what they've always talked about. And so naturally, as Jesus begins to share the kingdom manifesto, like, hey, new life, new creation, new way of living, this is kind of the the birthplace of this, is the writing of the Constitution. Like, Jesus is very understanding God himself is understanding of what we need to understand about what he's trying to help us know 
Because out there, there was this idea, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, well, there had become this mis, uh, general assumption, misplaced assumption from Old Testament scriptures that when the Messiah came, that he was going to bring a whole new kind of covenant, a whole new kind of thing, that what they had always lived out is going to be completely gone. Every bit of it. Messiah is going to come in and do a complete new thing. And so in the back of their mind, as they're listening to Jesus, as they're watching Jesus not do or not act like the religious people of his day, they begin to obviously have this assumption in their heart. Well, what does Jesus himself think about our laws? What does he think about our Bible, the Old Testament? Is he trying to be one that comes along and says, listen, that thing is over, gone. Don't even think about it. Forget it. Ignore it. Where where does Jesus stand on the Old Testament? Right? You know, today I hear a lot of things like I've heard these statements from well-meaning believers like, like, you know, like, it's just Old Testament. Like we've developed, especially I was, I was watching, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul the other day talk about this, and he would understand this better than me, but like um, that since the Reformation, which we are people of the Reformation, that the law has become disregarded in our Christian culture. We really generally have an attitude that that's Old Testament. I love some of you are on the edge of your seat right now. What are you going to say next? But here's what Jesus says in this Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. My remote's not working, so Ryan's going to try to follow me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think... Okay, guys, I, I want to I put something at rest early on in this sermon. Do not think that I come to abolish... The law or the prophets. The law, the first five books, the Torah generally, like the giving of the law, the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, the prophets who come along to uh, expound on the law, to explain it more in real life, to continue to flesh it out. Do not, come that I, do not think that I've come to abolish that. Oh, okay, so Jesus is pro-Old Testament. Yeah, He's pro-Old Testament. I have not come to abolish that. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What was given In the law of God in the Old Testament is an eternal thing. It will not pass away. Okay? I just want us to grab a hold of that. Because I'm going to then explain what that means for us. I like what Dallas Willard says when he says, The law is not the source of rightness, but it is forever the course of of rightness. Who God is, what he proclaimed, what he revealed about himself is immutable. It's unchanging. God does not change. 
In the Old Testament, God proclaimed things like, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the Lord, thou shalt not create any idols or images. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain or lightly, right? Like, Jesus is saying, listen guys, that doesn't go anywhere. That's who God is, and that's unchanging. And I'm not coming to say, hey, forget about all that. Old Testament. I'm here to help you understand it in a greater reality. Are you still with me? Okay, I really worried about this sermon today. And seriously, and I, I need people to put their thinking hats on today. I'm not going to tell you stories to make you laugh. Like, this is really important. Some of you are already asleep, but that's just what happens. Think. Think with me. Use your brain, okay? The law is not the, the source of rightness, but it is forever the course of rightness. Now, let me have a disclaimer here, because if I've heard ten times, I've heard a hundred times. Well, yeah, if you're going to say the Old Testament matters, why do you pick and choose the things that you follow in the Old Testament? Right? That's where you know where I'm going. Like, you say that I shouldn't murder somebody. You follow that. Don't kill Old Testament law. But then you're breaking the Old Testament law by the shirt you're wearing today, right? You didn't know that, did you? Like the Old Testament law said, don't wear clothing that has mixed fibers, right? Like this, I don't even know what this is. Polyester and cotton, something like that. You know, a mainstream blend. Like why, Chip, do you not kill somebody and say, I follow the law, but then you wear that shirt today? Why do you pick and choose? Right, this is the common thing, like, uh, especially around uh, conversations of sexuality today. Like, when God speaks about human sexuality in the Old Testament and then affirms it in the New, people are like, well, you can't say that that really matters now because, like, you can't just choose how somebody should act sexually, but at the same time, break all these other laws in the Old Testament. You're inconsistent. Right? Have you heard that? Have you thought that? What does Jesus mean by, hey, everything that was written is valid. It's the eternal word of God. You don't just poo-poo it. You understand it. You, you begin, you open the Old Testament scriptures like, God, what do you want to tell me in your law? Right? Well, it's in this context that we understand the law in three ways. There's the moral law of God that's a part of the Old Testament scriptures, right? Uh, Ryan, next slide. No one can see Ryan. Ryan's doing a great job. He has to follow me. That's a hard thing to do. Some of you are like, amen. The moral law of God. So God in the Old Testament is sharing, hey, this is, this is what I like. This is who I am. This is my nature, my character. Because I am love, I have created a world where I am desiring for the people I've created to live lovingly. And so, hey, you guys who have fallen, have made your own, like the, the Garden of Eden had one law, right? Like, don't do this. But like, you've, you've chosen not to, you've gotten so messed up in your brain, you don't know what's right. So I'm gonna 
help you understand that this is the nature of who I am. And I call people to be like me. And so people who are like me, they don't, they don't do these things. This is my character. I care about people. I love people. I do things that love others as myself. There's this moral law that runs through the Old Testament that reveals the, the unchanging nature of who God is. There's this judicial law. This is where we get all hung up on. Like, so God is also, at the same time as he's revealing himself and showing us this moral coding of the world, he's also saying, you people of Israel, I have some specific laws for you because I have a specific purpose for you. Really, what God was trying to do is to create a peculiar people. Like, anybody else want to be peculiar? Generally, we don't want to be peculiar. We want to fit in, right? The last thing God wanted was for his people to fit in. He wanted them to be odd and peculiar. That wasn't fun for them. I'm glad I don't live then. Because I wouldn't want to be the kid who shows up at school doing all the other things that no one else does, right? Doesn't sound fun to me, but God's like, I have a purpose for you, my people. I want you to be odd and peculiar. So I'm going to ask you to do these things. And there you go. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All these things about don't wear mixed clothing. Do this, do that. Practice this, practice that. It's this judicial, this national law of God. But it was for a specific time and a specific purpose. Only, only to Israel. Then there's the ceremonial laws. How do I worship God? How do God's people come before him and worship him? The sacrificial system, the offering system, the, when you come into the temple, you do this and you do that and you remember to do this and you remember to bring that and all those laws about worshiping God, the ceremony of coming before God. Now we know on the other side of this that Jesus actually, in his death, rips the veil of the temple and destroys the ceremonial systems of the Old Testament. He fulfills them. Yes, God has a proper way that we worship him, we come before him. But now it is simply in the name and through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. Am I good here? I'm very conscious that I want to, I want to, there's two parts to this sermon. And one, I want you to remember that what God spoke is eternal. And Jesus affirms that. And that the law of God mattered then and it matters now. Now parts of the law were never written for me and you. Guess what? And the other day I went into Outlaw Barbecue and had me a big old pork nachos. Didn't think a thing about it. My heart didn't condemn me. I, you know what? I kind of think, man, you Jewish people had it rough. That was never written for me or for you. And like I didn't bring a, a sacrifice with me this morning. Thank God, right? A bleeding animal or something like we don't have knives up here ready to cut a throat. Thank God. Understanding the Old Testament matters. 
And Jesus says it matters. He says, I didn't come to push it away. I came to fulfill it. You need to grab a hold of what that means. And the unchanging part of the law of God is his nature revealed that Jesus says, listen, I'm going to fulfill the judicial, the ceremonial stuff. But the moral law of God is his unchanging nature. And I actually am inviting you to not discard that, but to live into it. That's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is. Like, not, hey, the law is gone. That's Old Testament law. Jesus is saying, listen, who God is in his moral nature is who I am. And what I'm going to do in my life, my death and resurrection, is now, for the first time really, well, Old Testament saints kind of, but for the first time in fullness, give you the ability to actually begin to look like God himself. Because I'm gonna die, I'm gonna gonna rise from the dead, I'm gonna ascend, and I'm gonna send the helper, the Holy Spirit, into your life. That's how I'm gonna fulfill what the Old Testament was all about. And that's why through the New Testament, you see that, okay, oh wow, here's a command. You know, oh, that's moral nature. That's moral in nature. It affirms the moral law in the Old Testament. That hasn't went away. That's what Jesus is bringing us to because the moral law of God is built around one word. Love. Love. God is inviting us to follow him, his teachings, his commands, so that we might completely, full-heartedly experience a life that unreservedly knows how to love him and to love others. All right. If you are okay with what I've said or you, you, you're following what I've said, please say amen. All right, I'm gonna move on then. You see, the objective, the objective of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the key sentence of the whole sermon, so the objective of the Sermon on the Mount is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. God is wanting to change our hearts. That's the whole thing. Like, you can try to take these things, these uh, love your enemies. You have heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. You can try to do that. You can behavior modify your life, and guess what's going to happen? You're not going to last, because somebody's going to slap you one too many times, and you're going to go, and then it's on. You can't do it, because he's saying, listen, what I'm going to share to you how to live, you're going to understand quickly that you cannot modify your behavior to do this. The only thing is, is you have to allow me to change your heart, allow me me to change your heart. The, the heart of the matter is the heart, especially in the kingdom. So that's why he goes on and says in, in verse 
19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom, but whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I just remind you that there always has been a way that believers in Christ live and act if you're a true believer in Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Can we please, please run from the erroneous teachings of some kind of security That is, if I said a prayer at some point, then it doesn't matter what the fruit of my life is. Baloney. The fruit of your life is who you are. The fruit of your life is out of a present, active relationship with Jesus Christ. That was not even in my notes. I just always like to take a chance because it drives me batty in this world. And we wonder why our evangelical culture in America is tanking. It's because this has been predominant theologies that have just ravaged our churches and we're weak and anemic and we're losing our kids because we've taught things that aren't true. Read 1 John, okay? Read Romans 6. So, after my little diatribe there, here's what he does. He says, the heart of the matter is the heart The law hasn't went away. In fact, the law is used by God to help us understand his nature. This is what God calls us in. And the law, it does its work because I see this is the nature of God and I'm way below it, so it convicts me. It's a schoolmaster, it's a school teacher to teach me how sinful I am, but yet this is how God wants me to live. And so it makes me run to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, the only way I can ever live to the life that you've designed for me to live is if you're in me changing me. And there's where, this is where he begins. And I've got like seven minutes to talk about two things. Because he goes right, he starts, okay, I'm going to change your heart. And these are the two things. He talks about anger and lust. Sex and violence. Guess what sells on Friday nights at the movie theaters? Sex and violence, right? The best-selling books, sex and violence. This, we all know this, right? TV shows, sex and violence, Sex and violence has always been a huge part of of our fallen world. It's what we're, you know, anyway, you got it, sex and violence. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, so they're like, I'm good, man. I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. But I tell you, the heart of the matter is the heart. I'm more interested in the heart, not the fact that you're not a murderer. Like you don't understand the relationship with me and who you're supposed to become if you walk around and you just say, hey, I'm good because I haven't murdered anybody. He's saying, listen, I tell you that if whoever, anyone is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable in court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Basically, he says, listen, what I'm going to do in your heart, changing your heart, is not just make you walk around 
feeling like your heart is loving because you haven't murdered somebody, I am going to do and want to do a work in your heart that cleanses you from the predominant emotions of anger that lead to hatred, that lead to contempt, that lead to ridicule. You see, if the primary purpose of the scriptures is to love, how can I love at the same time hate? Don't say anything, married people. I tease it. That was a joke, you can laugh. And what he says is, let's talk about anger. I'm going to change your heart, well, let's go to there. And I need to share this today. If there's anything I need to share, just indulge me a few minutes. This week, as I have pondered over this and studied this, God, through the faithfulness of his Holy Spirit, has just opened this up in my own heart. This progression of anger to, say, raka, it's a contempt. To then, you fool, it's ridicule. There's the stages in our heart where we grow to hatred. There's anger at someone for wronging us. It turns into contempt. And then it becomes, we become so contemptual in our heart that we ridicule them every chance we get. And you know, personal illustration. I don't think they're watching, but they might be. I have a family member, not in my immediate family, but close, right? Who I have watched betray and lie and almost destroy my father's life and profession. His own sister. Hope you're out there. I've watched it. You want to know what that did to me? That made me angry. I mean fired up angry. Spitting nails angry. When you see someone that you love being lied about. I'm not talking about, oh, he, yeah, he, walked, he stepped in it. I know. Like, we're all human, right? No, he didn't even do what was said about him. He was lied about, which almost caused him to be destroyed personally and professionally. Lied, complete lies, proven lies. I mean, just lies by your own family member. It caused me to be angry. And you know what that anger did? It grew to where I just had a heart of contempt for her. You say her name and my heart was just, my heart is just, pff, what a joke. What a despicable human being. Until now, listen to what's coming out of my mouth. I have ridiculed her time and time again to my family. I have. I've been willing to ridicule her to her face, basically, given the chance. And you know what? What she did was despicable. What the Holy Spirit said to me is, you're going to get up there and preach this stuff. Look at your life. 
So the heart of this is love. To be like Jesus is to love, to love God and to love others. I can't love her. I can't do it. In fact, I ridicule her every chance I get because I'm full of contempt, because I'm angry. So you know what I'm doing this week? I've been confessing. Lord, have mercy on me. I was more despicable to you than you forgave me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I depend on you. I want your, I hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Like, I, I, I just want your righteousness. And part of your righteousness is I cannot live with contempt, anger, and ridicule in my heart and truly live the Jesus life. It's incompatible. I have, I have to make it right. Because you know what Jesus continues to say here? The next verse says this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Do I realize in my life that my coming before the Lord, that there's a damper, so to speak, in the effectiveness of my prayer life, in the effectiveness of my life to follow Jesus. Because there's a part of my life that is full of contempt and ridicule. And I'm not gonna be able to pull this off and love others until I first of all confess it and then I go and do something about it. So guess what I got to do this week? I got to call the person that I... Mm. No. I got to call the person that God is going to help me love. Like I should. I'm not going to lie to her. I'm not going to say, hey, it's all right. It would be cool what you said, man. I'm going to say, these are the reasons why I was angry with you. This is why I believe you were wrong. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I lay down my anger. I lay down my contempt. I lay down my ridicule. Because I want God to help me love you as Jesus loves you. Amen? That's what the Sermon on the Mount does to you if you let it. And I'm not looking forward to this. I, I'm avoiding this. But I know this is what he's wanting to do in my heart. You see, the prayer of today is, Lord, change my heart. He talks about lust. He talks about anger. He talks about lust. And lust truly is just a misplaced value. 
on what I think God is going to use in my life to fulfill me. God gives this gracious gift. But I become obsessed with the gift. And I begin to believe the gift is what will bring fulfillment and happiness in my life. And so I'm willing to disregard God's plan for my life in regards to sexuality because I believe that what really will make me happy and fulfilled is just to experience the gift. It's a misplaced. It's amazing the studies and all this. Now they're realizing, hey, the most fulfilled people in the world are ones who have a monogamous relationship. Sexual. Duh. God said that from the beginning. Like the lies out there were like, yeah, if you really want to like experience all that world, you, you know, live after your desires. Give yourself completely to it. Pursue it in every way with anybody and everybody you can that you desire to. God's saying, listen, see it as a gift that can never truly satisfy you. It just enhances your life, but I am the one who satisfies. I am the one who fulfills. It's just a beautiful color to life, but it will never, ever, ever bring you fulfillment. Are you willing to lay that down? Are you willing to believe and trust in my plan for that part of your life? So I finished writing this sermon. I was like, Lord, you tell us this, and you, obvious, you want to change our heart. That's the point. When the heart's changed, behavior naturally will follow. If you've been a parent, you realize the folly of trying to parent to behavior and not to heart, right? I have so many peers that their parents parented to behavior and appearance and comparison and externals and never bothered to, to like cultivate their heart. I thank God for my mom because I was not a good kid. <laughs> my behavior modification was lacking. But mom realized something very clearly. Like my heart was the most important thing. Was there standards and expectations? Yes. Ask my rear end. But there was never a parenting to like, okay, Chip, you've done this, this, and this. You're a great kid. Like you, you're good. No. Like there was expectations to function in society, right? But there was always a sense that Chip, your heart. If God can fix your heart, then everything else will flow out of it. I know I'm going long, I'm sorry. How does this change? If you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with lust, how do you change? Do you just bite your lip and do you do you just try harder? Jesus says, no, remember this sermon is built. And will you, just, will you just turn to me? 
Will you not worry about your behavior yet? Will you just develop and cultivate an attitude of, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I depend on you. Come to me. Open your heart to me. I will then begin to change your desires. Can we sing this little chorus before we go? Sarah's going to lead it. I'm not going to lead it. I know you know this, but it just is what I want us to live with or to leave with. So if you'll stand, let's just sing this, this little chorus together. Lord, I know that as we move through this, this is heavy, but it's what gives us life. It's doing the work of our heart that then creates the blessed life. If I can, if I can let you change my heart, then I can really live blessed. So Lord, help us to be willing to, 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 to allow you to search our heart, to speak to us in this way, to continue to allow us to, to allow you to change our heart. Blessing only comes through a heart that's changed by God. That's the source. So Lord, help us to embrace your teaching. Help us to allow you to change our heart. Help us to be inside out people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. For your sake and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, 
find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.